can turn to Matthew chapter 27. Now, we won't be doing an exposition of the text, uh, but we will be trying to examine the text. Uh, I have taught on this before, uh, just as last time we were together in Christology. Uh, I taught on, on, on that lesson, which was how we are to think of the sacrifice of Christ. And this evening, uh, I picked another lesson. And this is the last lesson that I'm going to be redoing again. Uh, because next time we're together, we're going to speak of um, what happened on what is called Holy Saturday. And that is uh, specifically dealing with, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus descended to the dead or descended to hell. So how are we to think about uh, that line? Um, but uh, we'll get there. This evening, um, I want to talk about a doctrine that is very controversial. And I think from from the sermons that I listened to over the week, just to refresh my memory on what these theologians and pastors are saying, about 90% of the pastors get this wrong. Uh Men who, good men who, uh, who have gone to good schools get this part wrong concerning the atonement of Christ. And when we think about the atonement, there are many controversial things already that we have to deal with. I mean, when you think about what are the most controversial subjects concerning Christ, much of it concerns the death of Christ. What actually happens on the cross? So you have the Calvinists first, the Arminians, who want to say that on one end, Jesus dies for everyone, and then on the other end, Jesus dies for a specific people. Um, and then you have the people in the middle, who are the hypothetical universalists, who want to say, uh, who want to hold to sort of a, a middle ground. Um, you also have different theories of the atonement, where you have the satisfaction theory, ransom theory, uh, there's the penal substitutionary model. So there's various ways in which people have tried to make sense of the cross. But I would say that how one, how well one uh, understands the doctrine of the Trinity and how well one understands the doctrine of the person of Christ hinges upon their interpretation of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, which reads, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? This is a very, very mysterious verse, is it not? Jesus is crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if someone was to ask you, uh, Christian, how do you explain this verse? What would you say? Now, a lot of pastors and theologians try to get too creative when they try to explain this verse. Many will say that it is at this moment Jesus is experiencing hell on our behalf. Why else would he be crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some would say that at this moment when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a severing. There is a tear between the Father and the Son. 
Very, very dangerous thing to say. Then also, some might say that at this moment, there is a separation within the person of Christ, which if the Father is no longer looking down upon the Son, that also means that the Son uh, is no longer uh, hypostatically united to uh, his humanity. Uh, so all you have left on the cross is just the human Jesus. Uh, there's a problem with that because there's no such thing as a human Jesus. There's one person who is divine that is truly God and truly man. So the doctrine that I want to raise this evening is that we must deny that on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father is not angrily or willingly turning his face away from him. As well as any understandings of the atonement where the father wrathfully acts personally toward the son, where the father is beating the son, so to speak, on the cross. Now, that's what many theologians want to say, that when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father is spiritually beating the son. He's pouring out this invisible wrath upon the son. Let's first answer the question, what is it meant for those who believe that the Father turned his face away? <clears throat> Where are they getting this notion from the atonement from? Well, the, the line of argument goes like this. On the cross, our sins were imputed unto Christ. God is too holy to look upon sin. Therefore, he turns his face away from the Son. And when he turns his face away from the Son, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at that moment when he's experiencing hell on our behalf. It's at that moment when the wrath of God is being poured out upon him. It is here when proponents will want to say that uh, Jesus Christ is despairing. He is, he is at a moment of, of losing his all hope uh, in, in, his, in his mission because the Father is abandoning him on the cross. So they will argue that in addition to the social abandonment, his friends, his disciples and family abandoning him, in addition to the suffering that he uh, underwent, there is also a real spiritual forsakenness going on. So social abandonment is not enough. Suffering is not enough. But there's also an inner spiritual abandonment going on. The spiritual wrath proceeding from the Father toward the Son. And Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me give you a few examples of what th these people are saying. And let me say that these people are not heretics. There is one that is a heretic. That's at the very end. Um, but what they are saying can lead to heresy. And I think much of what they're saying, it is implicit heresy. John Piper says, First, this was a real forsakenness. That is why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, means he really did. He's bearing our sin. He bore our judgment. The judgment was to have God the Father pour out his wrath on us. And instead, he pours it out on him. And that necessarily involves a kind of abandonment. That is what wrath means. He gave them up to suffer the weight of all the sins of all the, his people and the judgment of those sins. 
And we cannot begin to fathom all that this would mean between the Father and the Son. To be forsaken by God is the cry of the damned, and He was damned for us. So He used these words because there was a real forsakenness. Um, the, the problem with that is what He's doing, at least implying, is that there is a separation between the Father and the Son. When Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, at this moment, when he's crying out, is echoing the cry of the damned, namely the people who are in hell. So Jesus is amongst those in hell that are crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another one, his name is Tibidi. I don't know how to say his last name. But his name is Tibidi. And this is heresy. This is the deepest, darkest part of Jesus' suffering. Social abandonment was horrible, but came from outside. Emotional desertion was painful, but only inside Jesus. The spiritual forsakenness, spiritual wrath from the Father, occurs deep down in the Godhead itself. Now, that's heresy. He says that there's a spiritual forsakenness that occurs deep down in the Godhead itself. Within the Father and the Son, there is a separation. That's heresy. We dare not speculate, at least we blaspheme. Well, he just said it, though. He's speculating. But something was torn in the very fabric of the relationship of the Father and the Son. From all eternity, Jesus lived with the Father, and not just with the Father. That's all the Lord Jesus had ever known, the loving, approving, shining face of his Father. At three o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the Father turned his face away, and the ancient, eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. That's heresy. No matter what you say about what happened on the cross or concerning the work of Christ, we are never, ever, ever, ever to undermine who God is. Our doctrine of God is to help us interpret the works of God. John MacArthur, Christ died in our place and in our stead, and he received the same outpouring of divine wrath that is all of its fury that we deserve for our sin. It was a punishment so severe that a mortal can spend all eternity in the torments of hell and still he would have not begun to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped on Christ at the cross. This was the true measure of Christ's sufferings on the cross. The physical pains of crucifixion, dreadful as they were, were nothing compared to the wrath of the Father against him. And in that awful sacred hour, it is as if the Father abandoned him. Though there was no... Uh, there, there was no interruption in the Father's love for him as Son. God nonetheless turned away from him and forsook him as our substitute. See, now this is confusing. Because he wants to have it both ways. That there is a real forsakenness, which I agree that there is, but also there is no interruption in the Father's love. Tim Keller the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus Christ prays to God and doesn't call him Father is on the cross when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And hear what he says here. Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we can have a relationship with God the Father. So Jesus, because of his great love for us, he's willing to lose his relationship with the Father so we can have a relationship with the Father. And then lastly, everyone's favorite, Joyce Meyer. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and went to hell in our place. Then, as God had promised, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus hung on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. God cannot stay in the presence of sin. As Jesus took our sin, he was separated from the presence of the Father. 
So the logic of what these people are saying is because of sin and the sin imputed onto Christ, God is too holy to look upon sin. He turns his face away. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment is that it is the father pouring out this wrath upon the son. And he's experiencing our hell on the cross. That is what they are saying. Essentially, Jesus went to hell for us so that we don't have to go to hell. What I want to do is two things this evening. First, I want to answer what is the problem with the belief that Jesus experienced the same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell. And number two, let's answer what is meant by Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross Let's answer the first, and that is, what's the problem with the belief that Jesus experienced the self-same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell? Again, people want to say that when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing what we would have experienced in hell. He's crying out the same thing that the people who are in hell cry out. Why have you forsaken me? There is an exchange of sufferings on the cross where all the hell, all of God's wrath and anger is directed at the Son. And the reason why we can escape hell is because Christ experienced our hell on the cross. I even heard a pastor say that on the cross, Jesus experienced our judgment day. The final day in which we will be judged, Jesus experienced that. Those of us who we were still in Adam. What are the problems with this? First, this views the perfection of Christ's satisfaction as having personally suffered what the sinner would have been required to suffer rather than grounding the satisfaction of Christ in the dignity of his person. In other words, many will say the reason why Jesus satisfies the wrath of God is because he took the wrath of God for you. That is why the Father is satisfied at the Son's sacrifice. And rather, what we want to say is that's not it. The reason why the father is satisfied with the sacrifice of his son is because of who the son is. The value and the offering of him. That's what we want to say. It is as if every sin that you and I ever committed was, was storing up some wrath. And the value of Christ's sacrifice is that he's the only person in history that could absorb all of that wrath. And the reason why the Father can look down upon the Son and is pleased is because He's able to empty the jar of wrath upon Him. No. That's not what we believe. That's not how the Reformed traditionally spoken of the satisfaction of Christ. As we have seen last time we were together in Christology, the value of Christ's death is found in the free act of the Son, whereby the Father is more pleased with Christ's obedience than displeased with all the sins of humanity. Because Jesus is the Son of God, His death is of infinite worth and infinite value. He is worth something because He is truly God. And Christ is able to satisfy the infinite payment that we owe, not because He's able to take on the infinite punishment, but because He's able to offer His infinite self. Just as if you were in debt for a million dollars, you need a million dollars or more to get out of debt. Well, Jesus Christ gives himself up. He is more than enough to satisfy 
the justice of God. If there was an infinite amount of worlds, one drop of Jesus' blood would be sufficient enough to atone for the sins of every single person in those infinite worlds. That's what we are saying, essentially. This is why we are freed from the condemnation of God. This is why we can have justification, not just for a month, year, but for all eternity. Because we are united to an eternal person who paid for our sins. Think about it, saints. If we were in debt, an infinite amount of debt, then shouldn't Jesus die for an infinite amount of time? Shouldn't he be on the cross still? It would seem right. However, that's not where the satisfaction of Christ is found. It's found in his person. Okay? Charles Hodge makes this point clear. Quote, this perfection of the, Christ, of the satisfaction of Christ, as already remarked, is not due to him having suffered either in kind or in degree what the sinner would have been required to endure. So here he says, the satisfaction of Christ, the reason why the Father looks down upon the Son's sacrifice and is pleased is not because he suffered in kind or degree what those in hell suffer, but principally to the infinite dignity of his person, but because he is the God-man. Francis Turretin, nor yet moreover could you rightly say that he entered the place of the damned or was damned. Nor can you rightly say that Jesus Christ entered into hell or was amongst those who are in hell. He can indeed bear the punishments of those deserving to be damned, but not of the damned, so that he entered into the infernal place prepared for them. Here, Dr. Hodge and Turretin are in agreement with each other. We want to say that on the cross, Christ uh, was damned to the fires of hell. We aren't to say that he's experiencing the self-same punishment that you and I in Adam would have experienced. And this is so essential, saints, I'm telling you, because this is what many people want to say. It's, it's very subtle, but I think to get an emotional arise out of other Christians, they want to say, look what Christ did. He went to hell for you. But think theologically of what that actually means. Jesus goes to hell for me? He experiences the self-same sufferings that I would have experienced. We can say that Christ was cursed of God, as Galatians 3.13 says, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. But, but what's the punishment of those being cursed? It's death. That's it. But Christ is not downed by God, nor is he forsaken or alone. He was made sin, but he himself was never a sinner. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, as Isaiah 53, 4 says. Isaiah 53, 10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But the problem is, people want to read these verses, and they want to go a step further and say that the Father is personally striking the Son down on the cross. Saints, if that is how we view what's happening on the cross, specifically when Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then those who oppose... Any notion of sacrifice are right in saying that that is cosmic child abuse. The father doesn't willfully and angrily beat his son on the cross instead of us. So it's not as if the father is just about to hit us. Christ pushes us out the way and he's hit for us. It's not as if God is so mad that he just needs to take out his frustration on someone. That is a pagan deity. That's not worthy of worship. But rather, 
The father hands his son over to receive the penalty of the law, of breaking the law. What's the penalty of breaking the law? Death. That's it. Nothing more. No no, uh, uh, eternal punishment in hell. Death. Again, one of the biggest errors that people, well-meaning Christians, want to make is they want to push the sufferings of Christ too far. That it's not enough to affirm that Jesus died to satisfy divine justice. That's No, we need to go a step further. But that the Father directly inflicts torment on the Son. That's what they want to say. I even heard one pastor say, just as I was getting ready, that Jesus on the cross spiritually died. How does Jesus, who is the eternal son, spiritually die? That would mean that he is actually one of us then. He is a sinner that is in need of a savior. So we can't say that Christ satisfies the wrath of God because on the cross he went to hell for us. Rather, Christ satisfies the wrath of God because of who he is, simply put. How does Christ satisfy the wrath of God, the justice of God? Not because the wrath of God is poured out on him, but because who he is. He's of infinite value. <clears throat> Another problem with saying that Jesus experienced the self-same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell is this puts despair into Christ and fundamentally misunderstands Christ's cry on the cross. Again, when many consider uh, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They want to say it, it is at this moment when Jesus is despairing. He's losing hope. There's a loss of hope within Christ because the Father forsakes His Son. Now, not only is this unbiblical, but it denies the sinlessness of Christ. One of the chief punishments of those in hell is despair. That is one of the chief punishments of those who are in hell. It is despair. Jesus says in Mark 9, verses, uh, Mark 9, verse 47 through 48, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We read of this worm also in Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go back and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Here we see in hell that there is a worm that continually nags at those who are being punished. Now, what is this worm? It simply refers to one's conscience. One's conscience. Just as if what someone murdered another, uh, they get thrown into jail for life. And if they're truly remorseful over the crime, their conscience will continually nag at them. They'll continue to think about what they did and why they did it. And because they committed the crime of murder, they ultimately fall into despair because they know that they will never ever get out. In hell, man's conscience will continually eat them alive. They know that they cannot have God as their blessedness and reward. They know that they've sinned against God. In hell, there will never be a day when the damned are comfortable. And not because there's some sort of physical sufferings going on, but psychologically, 
that they're constantly thinking of who they are and who God is. And they'll never be at peace because they know that they can never escape. Imagine that. I mean, knowing that if you're in jail, one day you're going to get out by way of death. But in hell, you're never going to get out. This ultimately leads to despair, for they know that there is no hope. Let me ask you, friends, on the cross, is this the same punishment? Is this the same um, uh, psyche that Christ is going through on the cross? That he's despairing like those in hell. That he knows that he cannot have God as his blessedness and reward. That his conscience is eating at him alive. No. Because if Christ despairs like the damned do on the cross, and hear me now, then Christ himself would need a savior. If Christ despaired like those in hell despaired, then Christ himself would need a savior. If he underwent despair like the damned, then he would cease to be the eternal son of God. But this also is contrary to the way Christ spoke of the cross. He says in Matthew 16, 21, from the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised. John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He spoke of the cross as if it was his glorification. In John 14, after Jesus spoke of his death and many things that would happen leading up to his death, he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Consider the words of Christ's trial. He remains silent until he's asked if he's the Messiah. And he confidently responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's already talking about his second coming. And lastly, Hebrews 12, 2, or maybe his ascension. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So does this sound like someone before the cross, joyful, during the cross, despairing? No. He knew exactly what was awaiting him. And being abandoned by his father and undergoing the same sufferings that the damned undergo wasn't something that was awaiting him. We aren't to think, saints, that Christ survived the cross. He wasn't a survivor of the cross, but he endured the cross. He was confident in who he was. So, we see that Christ could not experience our hell on the cross because Christ never despaired on the cross. I mean, and we're going to go toward the end and talk about all of the other things that Christ said on the cross. They're confident things that he's saying. Now let's get to the text. Um, why? What, what does it mean in Matthew chapter 27, verse 36, 46, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does this mean? How are we to answer this question? Okay. <clears throat> Like I've already noted that many interpret Christ's cry as the Father forsaking the Son or turning His face away from the Son. Now let me give you two reasons why I don't think that this is the best way to view this cry. First, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although He may feel that. And let me stop here and say, 
I think that there is a real filling in his lower appetites or in his, in his, in his human soul that Christ feels that the Father has abandoned him. Aquinas would say that he withdrew his protection but maintained the union. So he can feel in his human soul that God has abandoned him, that he's no longer protecting him, that he's giving him off to die. And that's a natural feeling, is it not? That, Father, why am I going through this? Why, am I, why aren't you protecting me? But there is a, a reason why Christ is saying what he's saying. That although he may feel in his human soul that God has forsaken him, he knows ultimately that God has not forsaken him. And this is the reason why. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. So, if someone was to tell you, Christian, how do you answer, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Say this, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Simply that. And in Psalm 22, David is not expressing his sorrow that God has forsaken him. But just like Christ, his seeming forsakenness. It does seem, Christ on the cross... There's no one there but him. It does seem that God has forsaken him, right? He's not protecting him. Just like with David. In David's circumstance, it seems like God has forsaken me. But David will go on and praise God. And hear what he says in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And for those that want to say that the father turns his face away from the son, hear what David says here. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Case closed. Does the father turn his face away from the son? No. He's quoting this Davidic psalm where David says that God hears the affliction of the afflicted, and God has not turned his face away. But he has heard the cry. Here David is saying, although it may seem that God has forsaken me, my God hears me. Although it seems that I am alone, I am not forsaken. And if you read the latter half of the psalm, you'll see that this psalm ends in victory. It's a victory psalm that Jesus is quoting. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are to interpret this cry in light of the context of Psalm 22. So read Psalm 22 and then you'll get your answer of the psyche of Jesus Christ and what he's going through. And note this, saints, that when when the Jews or whoever else was at the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ... When they heard this, the way that uh, the rabbis would teach uh, the students how to remember psalms is they would, they would say the first line. Just as if I was to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
you know, you would start in your head singing the song. That is how the, the students were to remember Psalms. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Think of that. They know that he's quoting Psalm 22, but also they know the context of Psalm 22. And they know that, oh man, he's saying, he's singing a song of victory. Not of someone that's being forsaken. Again, although it looks like Jesus has been forsaken by God, since the Father handed him over to suffer and die, nonetheless, as Psalm 22 says, the Father has not hid his face, but he has heard his son's cry. Jesus' cry on the cross is ultimately not a cry of despair, not a cry of all hope being lost, but a cry of victory. That's how we interpret this cry. It's a cry of victory. But also it's a cry of fulfillment. That he is that long-awaited Davidic king. He is the Messiah. Jesus never despairs that his father has abandoned him. Rather, he is reassured that his father is with him in his sufferings. And this also, saints, expresses one of the great things of the Bible, is it not? That salvation always comes by way of suffering. Through judgment, salvation comes. And God receives glory. And lastly, on the cross, <clears throat> when, when, we, when, we, when we, people want to say that the Father turns his face away from the Son, it contradicts the rest of what Christ does on the cross. I mean, everything he says on the, on the cross is just victory, right? It screams victory. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He tells the thief, truly, I say to you, today you'll be in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are words of confidence, not despair, not abandonment. But I think the ultimate final nail to the coffin of those who think that the Father turned His face away from the Son is found in John 16, verses 31 to 32. So if someone wants to say, no, no, no. I still believe that the Father turned His face away from the Son. I think this is the nail in the coffin. Jesus says this, Do you now, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, you will leave me alone. He's talking about his crucifixion here. Everyone's going to be scattered. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He, talk about, he talked about his, his crucifixion and the sufferings. All of you are going to abandon me, except my heavenly Father. So saints, when we think about this cry of dereliction, we heard this morning uh, in point one toward the end, we were reminded of, of the great love that Christ has for us, right? Uh, one of the great mysteries, is it not, of the Christian faith, that the eternal Son, along with the eternal Father and eternal Spirit, has set His eternal love upon us. But what many people want to do is, they want to say, but look how much He loves you. That He's willing to separate Himself from His Father that's how much He loves you. Saints, let me say, why can't death be enough? Why can't suffering be enough? Why can't going through the humiliation of becoming like us, living in a sin-sick filled world, undergoing shame and persecution be enough? But why, but why do we have to know the great lengths of God's love for us 
by being creative and saying that on the cross, Jesus separated himself from the Father so that we cannot be separated from the Father. It doesn't need to be that way. In fact, that's heresy. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Just consider the cross and who's hanging there. Because on that pulpit, Christ in many ways is preaching his greatest sermon. That look how much, not only I, but the Father and the Spirit love you. So again, is this uh, when Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he despairing? No. Has he entered the place of the damned? No. But actually, he's proclaiming his victory over the principalities of, of the air and Satan and sin. Let's pray.